Hi, everyone, and welcome back to the Vitalist Spark podcast. I'm Marcus Johnson, Director of State Health Policy and Advocacy with Vitalist Health Foundation. And today I'm joined by three trailblazing advocates who are focused on improving health and well-being in Arizona using a little tool called public policy. If you're a frequent listener of these podcasts, the idea that health is more than healthcare shouldn't be a new concept to you. But what may be less intuitive is how this concept comes to life through public policy, specifically through state legislation. So today, we're reflecting on the 2021 legislative session in Arizona, with a particular focus on housing, food, and children's health. Now, if upon hearing the word legislation, you felt your eyes start to roll into the back of your head, don't worry, you are not alone. It's no secret that the very idea of legislation or working with the state legislature can cause many of us to shy away, yawn, or just stare blankly into the distance. But our guests today highlight the inspiring real world experiences that demystify lawmaking and show the great power of policy to improve community health. If there's one thing to take home from this conversation, it's a reminder that health isn't simply determined by what's within us, it's also governed by what's around us. Let's dive in. We're thrilled to be joined today at the Vitalist Spark podcast with three incredible guests. We have from the Arizona Housing Coalition, Executive Director Joan Service. Joan, how are you doing today? Hi, I'm great. Thanks for having me. And Executive Director of Pinnacle Prevention, Miss Adrian Udarby. Adrian. Hi, great to be in good company with all of you. Great to have you here. And Health Policy Director at Children's Action Alliance, Miss Zeta Dadoff. Zeta, good afternoon to you. Hi, thanks for having me. You've all been on this podcast before, so you're no strangers to Vitalist Spark. So let's just take a moment to remind our audience who you are and what your organizations are all about. Adrian, do you want to start us off? Yeah. Hi, everybody. My name is Adrian Udarby. I'm the executive director with Pinnacle Prevention, and we serve Arizona statewide, and we are focused on inspiring healthy food systems and healthy communities through active living. And Zeta Dadoff. Thanks for having me. My pronouns are she, her, and I am the director of health policy at Children's Action Alliance, as well as the policy director for the Arizona Public Health Association. In my day job, Children's Action Alliance uh, works to identify and eliminate barriers um, and also create opportunities for child and family well-being through partnerships and policy solutions. Thanks, Zeta. And as always, wearing multiple hats. Joan Service. Thanks for having me. I'm the executive director of the Arizona Housing Coalition, which is a statewide professional collaborative association that leads in the efforts to end homelessness by advocating for safe, affordable homes for all Arizonans. Thank you all for being here. So I want to start off just by addressing the 800-pound gorilla that's in the room. This is an episode about the 2021 legislative session. And that 800-pound gorilla that everybody knows about but often shies away from is politics. So many people just cringe at the very thought of talking about policy because it often gets entangled with politics and partisanship. So for anybody who's listening right now who's kind of on the fence about continuing to listen to this episode because they just don't like to talk about policy or they think I don't do policy or my organization doesn't do policy, why should they keep listening to this conversation? I often tell people you actually can get involved in advocacy because it's all about relationship building. 
if you're going to talk about policy and politics, it's basically relationship building matched with good ideas. And frankly, sometimes bad ideas. And that's what we work to combat. But you know, if it's good ideas and good relationships, that's a win-win everywhere. Zeta, Adrian, why should people keep listening to this if they think that "Uh, I don't do policy? That's not my thing. Even if you don't do policy, even if you don't do politics, policy and politics are doing you. So you better pay attention and you got to make sense. And, you know, at the very barest of minimums, I like to tell public health people that this is impacting your paycheck. And if you're not paying attention to policy, you don't know when that next one's going to come in. So even if you're going to be selfish about it, you should pay some attention. Adrian, your response? Especially when it comes to food, food is political, whether we want to own that or know that or not. And many of the folks that we work with oftentimes might just be farmers who are like, you know, I just want to keep my hands and head in the dirt. I don't really want to mess around with that kind of stuff. But everything we do from how we grow food, how we move food, how we price it out, it's all influenced and impacted by policy and regulation. So we don't have a choice but to be engaged and at least understand how it's influencing the communities and the systems that we're swimming in every single day. wanted to move forward, but first acknowledge the fact that we are still living within the context of a pandemic. Even though we are starting to see public activity ramping up, the economy at a, at a large scale is starting to show signs of recovery. But at the same time, we're seeing, especially in Arizona and across the nation, COVID-19 cases are continuing to rise. And this has an effect on all of the issue areas that we all work on in the policy world. So what are you hearing from the communities that you serve right now? How are they faring in this moment? There is a ton of confusion and fatigue. So confusion primarily around housing security and who is protected by the varying eviction moratoriums and what's the latest on the eviction moratoriums, which As of the taping of this, the Supreme Court overturned the CDC eviction moratorium, so there is no longer those protections for renters. Prior to that Supreme Court overturn, there was a late July eviction moratorium that allowed for counties with substantial or high transmission of COVID-19 infections to be covered by the eviction moratorium. If a county dropped, then the moratorium would end 14 days later, which actually, if you think about it, was a policy disincentive to get vaccinated. So that caused a lot of confusion. It actually created a lot of confusion amongst renters, landlords, and the courts. Now the Supreme Court has overturned the eviction moratorium. And so state and localities, Arizona and all of our local cities and towns are struggling and working diligently, trying to get the dollars out the door to families in need has created a lot of confusion and stress. And then in the meantime, our first responders in the ending homelessness sector are fatigued. I mean, frankly, we all are. So we're seeing a lot of employee turnover. And we don't have a state sheltered order in place, but a lot of our shelters and first responders are struggling to to meet the needs. That's, That's for sure. And then you couple it with the high heat. There's just so many different factors that are impacting families and individuals, and it's just a real crisis. Adrian Jones talking about fatigue, stress, confusion amongst family members and individuals. What are you hearing from the populations and the communities that you're working with? 
I would echo that uh, completely. Primarily the fatigue and the uncertainty is what's weighing heavy on everybody right now. We have folks that are still trying to navigate how to access nutrition assistance programs and are on hold and on calls and just trying to make their way through the system for hours. And that's exhausting. At the same time, we're trying to figure out how to recenter food system workers in all of this and what are their fundamental human rights, the folks that are providing us food every day and putting food on our table. How are we also taking care of them during this pandemic? And then you couple all of that with climate change and what's happening all around us all the time with the fires and the droughts and everything, we are feeling very threatened in terms of how we grow our food and how we move our food and then just how we feed the people. When you put all of those moving parts and pieces together of pandemic, worker well-being, and then the climate crisis, it feels exhausting and overwhelming to folks. It's a stark reminder that it's about more than just picking up a box of food or being able to go to the grocery store, that there's an entire supply chain that's behind that that is highly influenced by everything else that's going on around us. Absolutely. The supply chain disruptions that we saw on the national level are starting to take a turn. They're not improved yet. That did, on a positive note, turn a lot of people towards local foods, which is excellent. But now how do we continue to support that demand and that interest moving forward? We need to invest in the infrastructure to move those local foods throughout all the communities that want to see it and need it and know that it's a more reliable way to protect that local food shed amid all of these larger disruptions that are happening. Zeta, you work on some of these issues as well, in addition to health insurance policy for children and then a lot of other children's health issues. What are you hearing from the communities that you're serving? How are they faring in this moment where when you look outside at the local stores, it looks like things are kind of getting back to normal, but that might not be the case for all communities? Um, I think one of the biggest misconceptions that I hear is that this pandemic has exposed the cracks in our systems and it's exposed the holes in our safety net. And we keep hearing those metaphors. And I think that's a really phenomenal example of our privilege. And for so many people, these deficiencies have been present and growing and leaving people behind for years and years and years and years and decades and centuries. So what I hear particularly at this point is that there's a lot of distrust. There's just been so much volatility over the past couple of years. We had all these really significant changes at the federal level under the Trump administration, and now we're seeing those things unraveled. But a lot of people aren't quite sure who to believe or what to believe and where they fit into those intersections between state and federal and local and administrative change. And I'll also say, I think there's kind of a crisis of representation at play between the people who have been most impacted by the pandemic and the people who are shaping our response to it. So one thing that I think it's it's stressed is the importance of maintaining and also continually investing in prevention and in a foundation of community health and collaborating with those different sectors that all impact wellness. So let's dive into it. Zeta, you mentioned the people who are responsible for shaping the response, and that in part are our state lawmakers. Our state legislative session ended 60-ish days ago now. It seems like a lifetime ago, though, and it lasted a whopping 171 days. Most legislative sessions are intended to last roughly 100 days, so it was a long one without question. We did 
an episode on the legislative session back in February. Adrian and Joan, you joined us for that episode. And at that time, we thought that we were about halfway through the legislative session. It was somewhere around 45 days into the session. I was on that podcast as a guest. And I remember saying something to the effect of, you know, people were really ready for complete chaos during this legislative session because of COVID-19. But what we've seen so far in February was a relatively normal session. That's something that I said. So without mentioning specific legislation, what do you remember from this last session? Was it relatively normal? You were probably eating those words. (laughs) (laughs) It wasn't normal. I think back in January, when it started back in February, when we last talked, I think we were all thinking, okay, it's going to be short because of COVID-19 and because we have all these federal dollars. But instead, we saw all of the federal funds, the fact that Arizona was flush with cash, and yet legislators decided, oh, let's go ahead and make a, a tax cut that does not sound policy. We also had a lot of attention around voter integrity and election integrity. And oh, that was a hoopla and a half. A hoopla and a half, a new unit of measurement for the state legislature. (laughs) Adrian, what do you remember from this legislative session? I have to relate to you here, Marcus, in saying that the last time we spoke in February, I was like pinching myself and just thinking things are moving along here just so nicely. And, you know, maybe things will be in our favor to get us out the door with a few wins in a reasonable manner. Looking back on it now, it was just so polarizing by the end. And that's the main thing that sticks out to me is how polarizing it got and also just the loss of what felt like a lack of transparency, especially for folks that are more grassroots advocates, maybe aren't down there every single day, but have in previous sessions felt like they could follow along and, you know, they had an understanding of what's going on, but it just felt like all that transparency was lost and it just kind of became chaos at the end. Seda, what are your main reflections from this session? All I can say is just, wow, I think that no one was prepared for what happened this year. And I think that it's something that realistically is going to have ripple effects that we're going to be seeing and contending with for many, many years to come. We all felt going into this, and I know Senate President Karen Fan was was quoted pretty often saying, we're not going to do anything controversial this session. We're going to come in, we're going to tie up some loose ends from last year, we're going to pass a budget, and we're going to deal with COVID. And it, it became pretty clear pretty quickly that our legislature's idea of what dealing with COVID means means something a little bit different than your everyday Arizonan. And so that's definitely not what happened. We really saw very little movement. It's just talking about that foundation of health. Didn't really see any investments in that. We did see a lot of controversial efforts being pushed forward. And I'll say, you know, kind of particularly within the state budget, but I don't want to drop any spoilers. I'm not sure how many spoilers there are anymore. I mean, we hear about these things every day on the news or on the radio, can't seem to escape it. Let's dive into the legislation, actually. You are all behind some of the legislation that was introduced and in some cases, fortunately, passed. And some cases, maybe you helped to prevent bad legislation from actually moving further forward in the process. So let's talk about wins. Let's start on a high note, if we can. Help us understand some of the major issues that you were trying to tackle during this past legislative session and what kind of wins you actually saw. 
So housing advocates uh, did see a win this legislative session. And I think never let a tragedy or a pandemic go to waste. Lawmakers have been really paying attention to the issue of, of affordable housing and seeing an increase in folks experiencing homelessness. One of the policy interventions that the Housing Coalition has been lifting up is following other states across the nation in enacting a state low-income housing tax credit, which mirrors the federal low-income housing tax credit, and it's been around since 1986. It's responsible for a lot of affordable housing development, not only in Arizona, but across the nation. So many other states have enacted a state low-income housing tax credit, which serves as an additional incentive to create affordable housing, which is a costly endeavor because you, you know, not only do you have to bricks and mortar and all that fun stuff, but you also have to make sure that it meets regular regulations. So it's a more costly endeavor than market rate housing development. We were successful in enacting a state low-income housing tax credit. It was a bill that was signed by the governor on July 9th, and it creates a $4 million tax credit for four years spread out over 10 years. So it roughly equates to $160 million total investment in affordable housing, which is a huge investment from our state. We haven't seen this, this level of investment and it's something that we've been long pointing to the fact that we need to have more of a significant state investment. So we're pleased. It was a smaller negotiated piece of legislation down from our original hope. We've asked for $8 million. We've asked for $12 million. This is this has been an effort we've been working on for the past three or four years. It took hold. And again, it's because you know lawmakers are paying attention to the importance and value of home. So that is something that we were quite pleased that lawmakers heard us. Well congratulations on that. That's a huge win. And I think that another common thread that we hear about in especially legislation is that your experience of this taking three to four years of attempts is not unique. Zeta, when you reflect on the session, what were some of the policy wins that you experienced or you saw move forward? I want to just give some credit to Haley Coles and the team at Sonoran Prevention Works for all of their amazing work. They did what I think we all thought was was possibly impossible at the state level this year. They were able to achieve some really significant wins when it comes to harm reduction, including the fact that Arizonans will now have legal access to syringe exchanges, that syringe exchanges will now have legal access to syringe disposal. And that people who use drugs will have access to fentanyl test strips so that they can make decisions based on the whole picture. We saw some really amazing efforts to create a better pipeline of health professionals, particularly for and within low-income and BIPOC communities. And so that was really great. We had a couple of different efforts to expand things like graduate medical education. We saw the development of an area health education center that's specific to meeting the needs of tribal members and to developing a solid and sustainable workforce for IHS and Tribal 638 and urban Indian health programs. But when it comes to some of the things that CAA was working on with our partners, we really look a lot at affordability of healthcare, access to healthcare, quality of healthcare, and really just making sure that all Arizonans have access to care that is culturally responsive and available when and where they need it. So we really thought that, you know, given that to date over a million Arizonans have tested positive for COVID-19, almost 19,000 have died of COVID-19, and some of the estimates at the national level are over a million and a half kids around the world have lost a primary caregiver to COVID. So a parent or grandparent who is custodial 
I was really hopeful that we'd be able to do more and that we'd really be able to look at this from the perspective of keeping kids and families together and keeping them safe. Adrian, Zeta mentioned the pipeline of health professionals that was in part addressed during the legislative session. Talk to us about the pipeline of agricultural professionals and how that moved forward based on this last session. Yeah, we had two pretty significant food system wins this past session, despite everything. And one of those is SB 1150, which is the bill that the Ag Workforce Development Coalition put forward and moved through. And this has taken a few years to get to this point as well. But what we were able to do is get a two-year appropriation at 500000 each year, so a total of a million dollars that's going to fund an Ag Workforce pilot program here in Arizona. And this is really critical for both paying farmers for their time to mentor this next generation of farmers that are coming in, but also paying for the time and the effort of the apprenticeships and those programs of the folks that they want that really need, you know, again, hand in the dirt experience. There's only so much you can learn by the books, but when it comes to farming and agriculture, you really need that mentor and you need to be out there learning the field and the trades. Our average age of a farmer here in Arizona is about 62 years of age. So we're feeling very worried that when these folks retire, we don't have the next generation of folks that are ready to come in and take their place. So this is one solution that will be able to move us to a point where we have a next generation of new and beginning farmers and ranchers that are ready to provide food for our community. And then the other bill that we passed for food systems is uh, the Double Up Food Bucks Arizona program, which is the SNAP fruit and vegetable matching program that we've had here in Arizona for a few years now. We received a one-time appropriation for this program in 2018. We had tremendous success from that pilot and were able to prove that this is something that needs to be sustained long-term here. And so we were able to secure this session $2 million in three-year appropriations. So $2 million per year for the next three years to support the expansion of the Double Up Food Bucks Arizona program. We like to say that Double Up got double the ask because we went into the session actually asking for a million in recurring appropriations. While we didn't get the recurring appropriations, we're happy to get two million for the next three years. And that's going to go a long way in terms of expanding the program into rural communities and tribal communities, especially where the program doesn't exist. So Double Up got double the asks, and there were even more asks that maybe didn't get answered by the state legislature in the past session. Zeta, you had already kind of alluded to this a little bit, but what were some of the areas or the the bills that you all were working on or hoping to see pass that ended up being a missed opportunity? So we were really looking for all kinds of improvements when it comes to healthcare access. We had several bills introduced that would just be tremendous for for folks who need healthcare to be able to to access healthcare through our public health systems. One of them would have extended coverage to pregnant individuals who are enrolled in access. One of them would have expanded income eligibility for our children's health insurance program. Three or four bills that were looking to provide access to oral health care through our Medicaid system. None of those bills moved forward, unfortunately. 
And one of the things that I think we we do need to talk about is is the budget and the ramifications of the budget. So typically, you know, bills go through this traditional process and and they get approved by a majority of members and they pass. But the budget kind of reincarnated a whole bunch of bills that did not make it through the legislature, that did not have the support to make it through, and that I think have really significant implications for public health. So we saw, for example, preemptive ban on mask mandates. It's kind of tricky to talk about a ban on a ban, but what we saw is language in the budget that prohibits schools from requiring masks that restricts the ability of employers to require COVID vaccines. And really that goes beyond COVID vaccines. It's a little bit more broad than that. So we saw those kind of surface in the budget and be pushed through this really rushed process of being delivered as a package to the lawmakers and then being voted on within 48 or 72 hours. So I think we'll we'll continue to find those little nuggets of coal in there as we keep going. I don't think anybody wants to receive nuggets of coal, but uh, uh, it's important to know where they are, I, su- I suppose. So thank you for your work in diving into the budget and finding those. Adrian and Joan, I know that you are both working on other issues that maybe had a, a better vision of what would be to come, but maybe didn't cross the finish line. What were some of the missed opportunities that you saw happening? When we think about all of the issues really that we're talking about today, they're all grounded in like Maslow's basic hierarchy of needs, the base of like folks need their physiological needs met, their safety needs met before we can even move up that scale to achieve well-being. So thinking about it through that lens, just making sure folks get basic access to food, one important bill that didn't make it across the finish line would allow folks that were previously convicted, maybe formerly experiencing incarceration, allow them to actually be able to participate in SNAP. That is really important. So folks that have done the time and they need to come out and and try to keep a roof over their head and try to feed themselves, it makes it really hard if we have all these barriers in place that prevents them from being able to do so. So that one didn't make it across the finish line. And, you know, that's just one of many. But again, when we think about getting folks basic needs met, it's interesting how polarizing all of that becomes and how that gets played with with politics when it's something that we all deserve. So if you just center the equity and the dignity in all of this, it's like we lose that in in this tumultuous process that we've just been through. So currently, if you in Arizona want to receive SNAP benefits, i.e. food stamps, and you've previously been incarcerated, you're out. You you can't get food benefits. Yeah, if you've been convicted of a felony previously, you are not eligible to receive food benefits. And Joan, I know that in terms of housing and getting housing subsidies and affordable housing, there's some limitations on that as well based off of individuals' past. Is that correct? Yeah, not only for any kind of entanglement with the justice system that serves as a barrier, but also having an eviction. And we obviously talked about this start of the show, but evictions and convictions are the big barriers to accessing housing. So what did you see in terms of missed opportunities this session? Were there other bills or ideas that the Housing Coalition was trying to push that didn't make it all the way? Yeah. And I did want to take a quick moment to talk about the fact that there were some other 
housing wins that impact our sector in a very positive way. With the federal funding coming to our state, lawmakers took a portion of the federal funds, but they also put the state on the hook for directing a million dollars to the Department of Economic Security for homeless youth, addressing youth experiencing homelessness. You know, the state will become on the hook for that in fiscal year 2024. So right now it's the federal dollars for the next couple of years, but then the state will come to to pay the ticket. And then we were successful in stopping legislation. And that was, there was an effort to allow for structured camping facilities, which are not the best housing policy. You know, we don't necessarily want a structured camping facility, but the big takeaway with that was they were trying to redirect state and federal dollars. It's a very punitive effort to criminalize folks who were experiencing homelessness and living on the streets. So we were successful in pushing that down. Do I expect it to come back this next legislative session? I fear so. But speaking of next session, I am hopeful that those missed opportunities that we saw in the 2021 session, we can take up the mantle again this next legislative session. One of the housing policy levers that we've been trying to advocate for is restoring the State Housing Trust Fund, which is a fund that the Department of Housing oversees, and it's flexible and it meets the housing needs. It can meet wildfire response, it can meet shelter response, and it can also serve as some gap financing for affordable housing creation. We weren't successful in getting that fund restored, and that's due in large part to the federal funding influx of dollars that we received. But we do anticipate there to be a federal funding cliff. And so that's when we're really going to be making the case that our state lawmakers need to continue to invest in in housing. And then finally, we talk about it taking a village and community and collaboration. I mean, ultimately, I would love to see our state agencies work closer together in responding to housing. Many years ago, there was a commission on on, um, housing and homelessness that was overseen by the Department of Economic Security and Department of Housing. We do now have a new housing director that sees value in state agency directors working together to address housing. So I think that whether it's a legislative idea or just happens organically, I do think we're going to be seeing that in the next little bit. Yeah, it's a prime example of how, even though we're kind of framing this conversation around a handful of individual issues, that all of these issues are interrelated, whether it's housing department working with other state agencies like AXIS or Department of Economic Security, whether it's focusing on things like harm reduction, but also recognizing that those individuals who might be using drugs still need access to additional services that might come with trusted resources like syringe service programs. It's just a reminder that there are so many layers that connect all of this work together. People often ask me, how do I feel about this legislative session? We saw wins in housing and food and children's health, but that also has to be balanced with some of the bigger picture stuff that we saw around the partisanship, some controversial tax breaks. What flavor is left in your mouth after this session? I'm going to jump right in and say the first thing that came to mind when you said all that, Marcus, is the lens that we are now, well, so individually. Joan, the way Joan is now viewing the pandemic. There's been some positives and negatives. Positives is that I'm stuck with my family, so I get to value and appreciate them a lot more. But at the same time, we're experiencing trauma and uncertainty, and we've all experienced a sense of loss, whether it be a loved one or just the, the loss of routine and community. So just like I, I think about the, the highs and lows of the pandemic, I also think the same thing about this last legislative session. There were highs and there were lows. 
I like that you used flavor, Marcus. And when I think, you know, as a dietitian, I literally start thinking about those flavors. I was like, was it sweet? Was it savory? And I was like, no, it was bitter. I feel bitter about this past legislative session. And I'm feeling bitter still about what's to come, mostly because Arizona was thrust into the national spotlight and all over the news and what felt like really embarrassing ways when there was these goods happening. And so these good things don't get focused on because we have this turmoil and this infighting and all of these things that are catching the spotlight. So that makes me feel better as well, too. And I feel better that we have been making progress over the years and that feels like that's been undone and now we have to go back and do it. But I also feel that folks are in this for the long game. And even though we're all exhausted, we know how important it is, but we're not going away. And so when we feel like, again, some of those, you know, those safety parameters and the harm has been done, that really ignites a fire under folks to get folks moving and saying no more. You know, we have to make sure that this is the Arizona that we want, the place that we want to raise our kids in, that we're protecting our kids, that we're centering the families and the needs of community and not letting those louder voices, which are the few, drown out that collective village and that spirit. Zeta? What flavors left in your mouth after this legislative session? What first came to mind, my two-year-old, instead of saying this thing sucks, which like we don't really want my two-year-old to say, he'll go, this yucks. And so he'll say it about like food or a book or anything like that. That thing yucks. And that was the first thing that, that popped into my mind. I think that this pandemic as a whole has kind of ignited this rhetoric about personal responsibility and health as a personal choice. And I really think that we're only as free as the decisions that we have available to us and the consequences that we face by making them. And that one thing I found really hopeful in all of this is the resourcefulness and the resilience of our health community and of the advocates and of community members who care and are looking at this and are like, you know, as Adrian said, this isn't the Arizona I want and are stepping up to do something about it. So I guess there are pros and cons, mostly yucks. Yucks. I'm going to start saying that more often, probably. It's a little more politically correct than some of the stuff that I originally think about saying. It gets the job done. What have you learned over this past year? Adrian and Joan, I remember in the previous podcast that we were all on, Joan, you were talking about the need to involve communities who are most affected in the actual decision-making when discussing policy. Adrian, you had hit on a number of points about trying to humanize the work and speak to the values of individuals and the decision-makers whom you're working with. What are some of the things that you're taking home with you that you want to remember about this session, about how to actually advance health policy or just public policy in general, that hopefully you can carry into the next legislative session? It hasn't changed for me. I think centering the values is still absolutely critical. And unfortunately, what we've learned, especially amid the pandemic this session, is we can give all the data and the science in the world, but it kind of sits and it falls flat. 
It's speaking to folks' hearts and minds that really tends to move something along. And so that remains true for me. And I'm going to hold on to that going into the next session is just recognizing the human that's in front of me and how can I speak to their heart and their mind and their values to help folks understand and get on the same page. I'm not going to assume that everybody holds the same values as me. So just understanding what is it that rings true for the person in front of me in, in this moment and for the communities that they represent and how do we align those forces together? I echo what Adrian says. I'm not going to change my answer from, from February. I think I really want to use this pandemic, this last session, the last 18 months, the last centuries of systemic racism to fuel me and, and my work and, and our collective work in making sure that the voices of, of folks with lived expertise help inform the policy solutions. I've got some ideas, right? Like, I think I'm brilliant and I have all these ideas, but there might be easier solutions, easier approaches. We may not even have to go down to the state legislature and that would be brilliant. We don't even have to waste anyone's time. Uh, we might be able to think about systems advocacy or some regulation that can be put forth. But again, we need to make sure that all voices are at the table. I completely agree with what Adrian and Joan just said. And I think that really where my focus has been lately is on engaging those stakeholders. And it's kind of a double-edged sword in some ways, because when you have one person who's been impacted by something, it's easy to fall into like this hit of personal responsibility. It's like quicksand where you start tearing apart their life and every bad decision they've ever made. And when you put yourself in those shoes, I would hope that that's not how I would be treated if I was in a position where I really needed something. And so one of the things that we're doing is working on engaging people in peer-to-peer -peer capacities, spending our power and spending our privilege to, to get those groups in front of policymakers directly, as opposed to, you know, speaking for them, presuming that we're speaking for them. And then also really correcting some chronic misconceptions about poverty and about health and about all of these different things that we see as Adrian and Joan both touched on that kind of value-centric way. Like, how do we say, I think you're wrong about this in a way that really speaks to something that people care about and want to correct? So Zeta, you mentioned part of the way that you're thinking about moving into the next legislative session is in part bringing community groups who are actually having the lived experience and getting them a seat at the table, essentially, like helping to use your own power and privilege at Children's Action Alliance to open certain doors that maybe are more difficult for some grassroots groups or just communities that are experiencing the effects, good and bad, of these policy decisions. What else are you all doing during this legislative offseason? Are you preparing for next year already? Are there specific bills that you're hoping to introduce in this next legislative session, which apparently is just over four months away now. That just gave me heartburn here. Sorry. <laughs> um, <laughs> I mean, I think there are some immediate things that are being done to try and counteract the harm that was done this year. And I can speak from the organization that I work for. We're currently attempting to refer three separate bills to the ballot. Direct democracy is an amazing tool. And if we get enough signatures by the end of this month, we may be able to let voters make the decision about where our tax dollars are going and how we're funding future projects in our state. We're also currently suing the state over the, the budget, a single subject rule, which I think we could probably spend an entire podcast talking about. Some of our time and attention has been taken up by that. But I think on a more personal level, I think I'm really trying to engage with 
my friends and my colleagues and my family in different ways. And to take off that hat of like, this is what I do for work and bring it into the context of this is what I do for work. And this is how it's going to impact my son in 20 years. And this is why you should care about it. So I think kind of a mixture of all of those things. And we are focused right now, currently during the off session of uh, rolling out and finalizing our first statewide food action plan. We have four priorities that have been identified under that food action plan, which is food access and distribution, land and water access and protection, climate smart food ways, and then the agriculture workforce development. And so we aren't anticipating any direct bills coming into the 2022 legislative session will probably more so be on defense a little bit, but planning out what we want to be able to prepare for, for the 2023 legislative session, and then also connecting back with community amid the uncertainties of the pandemic to say what's new, what's changed, what do we need to reimagine now that we could make different in the future sessions that are coming um, just based off of everything that's happening around us? It's really, it feels hard for folks to project right now. So what an opportunity to reimagine. Joan, how are you spending the legislative offseason? Gathering my thoughts, taking a breath. I do think that that speaks again to the fatigue that our systems, our, our collective response, our the social determinants of every, everyone on the show is feeling fatigued in what is next. I briefly touched on our efforts to restore the housing trust fund. I'm sure that's going to be on our policy agenda for the next session. But I also think as a, an affordable housing and ending homelessness sector, I think we're looking at this narrative that we really need to speak to. And really, when we talk about affordable housing, we finally have the funding, right? With all the, We have a once-in-a-generation funding opportunity with all these federal dollars. And, and some would say we have the political will, but we don't have the community will. And so I think we, as a sector, will be looking at public perception and community perception, like an education and messaging campaign. I don't know what that looks like currently, but I am hoping that it can be a coordinated response where we can have different audiences, but still, you know, we're not saying differing messages. We can all be on that same bullet points. And then I think just ultimately everyone, we need to survey our members and get a collective feel. How is everyone doing? How can we assist you in doing the life-changing, diligent work that you all do in, in addressing housing insecurity? So more to come. There definitely is more to come. Before we exit out today, I want to circle back to a couple of things. At the very beginning of this podcast, we all talked about why public policy? Why is policy and legislation such an important thing to, to focus on? And throughout our conversation, we've definitely exposed that there are wins and that there are a lot of challenges. So if there is one thing that you want our audience to take away from this conversation, what is it? Okay, I'm going to be silly, and hopefully you guys have seen this. I'm going to hearken everyone back to that meme in Waterboy. He claps his hand together and says, you can do it. You can do it. We can all do it. So, oh, I'm just going to make a fool of myself and say that. Oh, I love that. I love that. I would just go back and say the pandemic has kind of forced us all apart, and we all need connection and belonging again. But in this policy space, it does connect us. We all do have shared values in this, even if we're talking different sectors or different elements of the work. 
And so why policy? Because policy connects us. It's everything. And so at a time when we're all thirsty for some belonging again, I think it's an opportunity to reinvigorate ourselves and our community in a way that we really need right now. Zeta, what's the one thing that you want our audience taking away from this conversation? Please vote in every election for every level of government. I think we've seen this year how important it is and how powerful our school districts can be and how powerful those like local races can be. So please pay attention and please vote. I know it's hard and it's complicated and it's messy, but it's important. Well said, everyone. And so we've come to the close of this episode way faster than our legislators closed the 2021 session. As we heard from today's guests, Arizona made great strides during the most recent legislative session, but we still have plenty of solutions that need to be implemented. And that work starts now. Remember, the choices we make depend on the options we have. And those options, for better or worse, are often determined by the rules, laws, and regulations that are made by people whom we put into power. We can't guarantee that decision makers will always make the right decision, but it's on us, all of us, to ensure that they make an informed decision. In its most basic form, this is the foundation of the advocacy of today's guests. They're ambassadors to the worlds of food, housing, and children's health, and they use their knowledge to inform decision makers about pressing issues and scalable solutions. Whether you consider yourself an advocate, an academic, a working professional, or someone with lived experience, we all should have a seat at the policymaking table. So pull up a chair, use a pen, or grab a mic. There's work to be done. Many thanks to our guests, Adrian Udarby, Joan Service, and Zeta Dadoff, and a shout out to the team at Gordon C. James Public Relations and producer Rob Trigg at Star Worldwide Networks for editing and sound design. If you've enjoyed this episode, you can access all of our podcast episodes at vitalisthealth.org slash podcast, or by searching for Vitalist Spark on your favorite podcast platform. Until next time, take care of yourself and each other.